0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to episode number five of the Air Power Hour. Tech Sergeant Check here, and joining me on the podcast this week is the Air Force Recruiting Service Chief of Operations, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Turner. Colonel Turner has served in the Air Force for 23 years, beginning as an ROTC cadet and continuing his decorated career as a pilot, instructor, and commander. As a pilot, Colonel Turner has logged over 3,100 hours in the air, to include his time in the F-15C which is an air-to-air combat variant of the F-15 Eagle, one of the most dominant weapon systems in the world. He explained how surreal it is to cruise faster than the speed of sound at 50,000 feet. Lastly, Colonel Turner had some amazing advice for anyone interested in joining the Air and Space Force. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down with Colonel Turner, and I appreciate him taking the time to be on the show. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado... Lieutenant Colonel Jason Turner.
1: To all units, proceed to your post assignment. All units, proceed to your post assignment.
0: Welcome to the Air Power Hour. Okay, welcome back to the Air Power Hour. My name is Tech Sergeant Check. I'm the host. And today I have the honor of being joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jason Turner. Colonel Turner, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sergeant.
1: Check. It's awesome to be here in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, with y'all. Heck yeah! And what brings you to Oak Creek, Wisconsin? So it, it was a great target of opportunity. I found myself in uh, Chicago, uh, working out of uh, MEPCOM, the Military Entrance Processing Command. Yeah. Uh, where all of the uh, all of our applicants will go through to get their medical screening uh, prior to joining. So the, I, I was at the headquarters of that facility and uh, talking to all of the other uh, recruiting operations folks from Army, Navy, Marine Corps, talking about how we're going to get after recruiting in uh, fiscal year 23, which is going to be an exceptional yes. challenge. Um, so a couple days working with uh, those folks on refining our processes, which was a great opportunity. And then just being able to drive just an hour up the road and get an opportunity to uh, come on your podcast. I, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Hey,
0: thank you for coming. I appreciate it. I know that, you know, what we do and, and you coming up here all the way from Air Force Recruiting Service headquarters, uh, you have a very busy schedule. So I just want to say thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come up here and, uh, and do this. And I'm excited for this conversation. I really am.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks. I'm excited too.
0: Yeah. So you are the chief of operations for Air Force Recruiting Service. Is that correct?
1: That's the job title. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that means. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been in that position? So it's been uh, coming up on three months now. Wow. Um, and it's been kind of a trial by fire. Uh, a lot of the people who are in the operations business uh, in the recruiting operations business have been doing recruiting work uh, for the better part of their career. Some yeah. people for over a decade, some people are two decades worth of experience uh, and that's just not my background. I have a feel we'll talk a little bit about yeah. what I was doing beforehand. Uh, but it's really required me to uh, lean on the the smarts and the intelligence of people who've been doing this recruiting business for a long time. For sure. But then look at the problems that we're having within the recruiting enterprise with a new set of eyes and try and get after, hey, how can we do this better and get the word out to the people who are going to become airmen and guardians uh, in the future and join our team soon. Absolutely.
0: And there's nothing wrong with getting an outside set of eyes because I know that sometimes we get a little stuck in our ways and, and having that fresh set of eyes to be able to provide new input and maybe different ideas, it makes a huge difference for sure. Again, I'm really excited to have you on. And and uh, the reason why we wanted to have you on is because really we want to hear the story of Lieutenant Colonel Jason Turner and, and his, his Air Force story up to this point. How long have you been in the Air Force? So I'm
1: over 23 years now. Wow. Well, thank you for your service. It's, it's been an honor to serve, you know, it's been uh, you know, some people say, Hey, how are you doing today? And they'll say, Hey, I'm living the dream. And that becomes like their catch line. You know, I am like, honestly living. I know. Right. So it's, uh, it, it, it's been a good ride. Absolutely. So we are going
0: to start from the beginning. Uh, Colonel Turner, when did you decide that you wanted to join the air force?
1: it's kind of a long story, but the, the short answer is going to be, I knew from a very early age that this was something that I wanted to be a part of. Um, and the way the story goes, uh, I was a nine-year-old boy scout um, living up in Southern New Hampshire. You okay. Know? And uh, it, one of the trips that my uh, my scout group did was out to Otis Air Force Base in Massachusetts. And I remember one of the things that we did is they took our scout group out on the flight line you can imagine a bunch yeah. of young oh kids gosh. right we're all kind of like walking around eyes wide in this like big open space and there's tons of noise and there's aircraft moving around and everything and i distinctly remember uh one of the planes started taxiing back in and the noise started getting louder and louder and louder and you know all of my friends there like their faces scrunch up they put their fingers in the air was like ah and i i remember i was the person who as this aircraft started to come into view like i was just dumbfounded you know yeah. I, I was I would have been less impressed if Superman had flown by. <laughs> um, so as this plane's taxiing in closer, we're like right next to the spot where the 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 maintainers are marshaling it in. Yeah. And it's this beautiful F-15, two, oh two tails, gosh. two engines. And like I said, all of my friends are just like kind of like running for cover because it's it's loud, it's noisy, and there's wind blasts and everything. I'm just saying they're dumbfounded. And I swear, what happened? was is the the pilot from his cockpit saw the scout troop there and he and he, any he waved at us you know oh, yeah and i swear that guy was waving at me directly, directly directly like i i like looked him in the eyes i'm like sitting there mouth open and i just i waved back oh, at man. him and he taxis in and i'm like that guy has the coolest job in the yeah. world and uh so sure enough from the time like nine-year-old jason had seen this i'm like i've got to find a way to make this happen yeah love at first sight so it, it, the next it, whole time as I was going through school, it's, that was the goal in mind and all the times that it got hard, it was keep that in mind. And the, 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 cut to the chase is it was 15 years later from when that nine-year-old boy scout was looking at that, uh, F-15 pilot that was taxiing in, uh, I was sitting at the end of the runway at Tyndall air force base in my first Eagle ride, wow. uh, getting ready to take the runway five stages after burner lift off put the nose up in the sky and watch the world get small behind those two tails oh, it man. was 15 years later and it became a dream realized That's, Um that is crazy and now you say eagle that is the f-15 right? it is the f-15 so, and i was an f-15c there's a, bu- a couple different variants the f-15c is an air-to-air version mm-hmm. um so we're primi- primarily focused at uh it mitigating or eliminating the air threat that's in front of us. So other adversary aircraft. Wow. Uh, the Strike Eagle is a multi-role aircraft. It's capable of doing deep strike. It's capable of dropping uh, bombs and other munitions. We didn't have any bombs or munitions were missiles and guns to get. Wow. After. So for all the listeners out there,
0: that's like top gun type stuff. Like the, the, the air to air, uh, at least the first one, the first Top Gun movie they did air-to-air stuff.
1: I think there's plenty of analogs in those movies, and you know those movies are an inspiration too. Like, the first one I think came out in 1986, and yeah. that's, I, I think, young Jason Turner was right about nine years old, right about that. Oh yeah, perfect. <laughs>
0: well, everything lined up perfectly. You saw the F-15 Top Gun came out, that had to be used. That is that is so cool. So, I, I know we were going to get into it, You you were an F-15 pilot, and... How many i mean how long were you flying the the fighter pilot or the fighter jets
1: so it's funny that you ask because like i still wear an eagle driver patch i'm wearing my flight suit today and i I wear my eagle driver patch because that's kind of my identity because that's our major weapons system and once we've been locked into a major weapon system you carry that throughout your career the truth of the matter is i was only flying eagles for a very small portion of my career is from about 2005 to 2008 okay and for like a lot of the folks listening they're like wow very young when yeah. during that time frame, uh, I did a lot of time doing training work. Okay. Um, so the vast majority of my flying hours were as an instructor pilot at undergraduate pilot training and introduction to fighter fundamentals, which is the graduate course for folks headed towards fighters right after they get their wings. Okay. Their force.
0: Awesome. And did you do any deployments as a as an F-15
1: pilot? You know, that's a great question. And most people think that, hey, you've been in the military for 20-some years. You've spent a lot of time deployed downrange. And just the way my career has played out, uh, it was a very different circumstance than most folks. When I was an Eagle driver, I was in Kadena Air Base, Japan, which is okay. on the island of Okinawa, south of the, the mainland of Japan. And when you look at that geopolitical region, that's exactly where they wanted the F-15s to be. Yes. Um, so we did a lot of our operations there. And around the Pacific Rim, working with our partners in the, mm-hmm. in the area. So uh, I wasn't deployed, but I was remotely stationed in order to be able to be doing the business where we wanted.
0: And why do you think that, uh, for geopolitical reasons, why having the F 15s there in Japan, why was that a, a good
1: idea or reason? Well, some people think about the military as only fighting our wars. And I think mm-hmm. a good way of looking at it, the military, is if we're doing our job well and we present a credible capability to our potential adversaries, it limits our potential adversaries choices of what actions they're going to take. Yes. And without naming other countries in that region, um, there's definitely some people looking to see what can America and its allies do potentially in my backyard. Yeah. Um, and I I would like to think that we were very credible in what we could bring, uh, if something did start.
0: Good deterrence, good deterrence. That's the idea.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I went on a tangent. You
0: said fighter pilot, and I'm just... Uh, I, I i mean, when I joined the Air Force, i it was because my love of jets. I mean, i we would have a air show every once in a while. I don't think it was every year, but it was back in my hometown. I'm from La Crosse, Wisconsin. Shout out, La Crosse. Uh, and we had a an air show. It was called the Deke Slayton Air Fest, and every once in a while either the the thunderbirds or the blue angels would come and i just remember riding down on a bike trail and when they were doing their practices and seeing those fighter jets it just blew my mind like maybe there was a parallel between you at 9 and me you know probably 9 10 just seeing that those fighter jets was so cool and i just didn't realize how awesome of a job that would be and uh, I never got to do it, but to be able to sit down and speak with someone who did is really, really cool because I don't know when I was deployed in Kuwait, we had some fighter pilots come into the dining facility once. And I mean, they all looked like they walked straight out of the Top Gun movie tall. They had the aviator shades on. They all looked cool. They had the fighter, the the patches on and just and you're immediately like in awe of those people.
1: So it's a, it's a, a fascinating job for sure. It's. I definitely joined with the intent of flying. Yeah. Now, becoming a fighter pilot, there's a unique set of circumstances that gets you in that 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 door, and then opens up those opportunities for you. And we can talk about that. But one thing that I want to get out right off the bat, um, you talked about that image of the fighter pilot being a, elite or special, uh, and there's capabilities that we're able to do that's really cool and a lot of fun. Yeah. But I don't want people to think that it's it's not something that's attainable. First yeah. of all. I think anybody who applies themselves could find themselves in that role if that's something that they enjoy doing. The other thing is fighter pilot is one job in the Air Force. It is not the Air Force. And a fighter pilot is going to be absolutely useless on game day if they don't have the maintenance officer that takes care of the, or the maintenance uh, troops that are working on the aircraft to get them out the door, Uh, the intelligence folks that are providing them the, the briefing all of the support people that made sure that you and your family are well taken care of so that you can put your mind on the mission, uh, and and a hundred other functions that all come in concert so that when it's time for that plane to launch, the pilot's able to go about doing their job. Uh, the other thing is, it, you see in the movie Top Gun or something like that that depicts fighter aviation, and it seems almost carefree or uh, reckless. And it's actually very structured. Yeah, Um, The sequence of events that you do, the tactics that you fly, how the team works together, it is not as random as some of that media tends to suggest. Yeah. So those are some misnomers about uh, what people perceive about fighter aviation versus what it actually is.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. I really do because they, there, there is a depiction of a fighter pilot, but they come in all shapes and sizes, and, and I'm glad that you said that, and I appreciate that from a standpoint of someone who supported them uh, in my career before I came into recruiting uh, as an air transportation individual, so uh, it, it is good for individuals, especially that are in the military right now, in the Air Force right now, to to be able to take a step back and look at the big picture and the impact that they are having. Just because you're not flying a fighter jet does not mean you're you don't have a significant impact on the mission.
1: It's like you think about a football team. Um, a lot of times the 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 praise and the trophy goes to the person who scored the winning touchdown. Yeah. But if it weren't for the offensive line, the defensive line, all the players doing their responsibilities, the coaches, the training staffs, the managers, everybody yes. who had done all the work to get the team to the field and prep them for game day. You just, you don't have a chance at executing successfully on the field. Yeah. It takes a village for sure.
0: So we Went off on the the fighter tangent, and uh, rightfully so, because it's awesome. But what I want to know is how you came to that position. So you decided to to join the Air Force. Which route did you
1: take to join? So my game plan was to try to go to college to try and get a degree that I could use after the military. And one of the ways that uh, you could do that was to try and apply for an ROTC scholarship. Okay, and at the time, I definitely knew that I wanted to join the Air Force, but I also knew that I needed some financial help to get through college. Yes, so first thing I looked at was uh, the the Air Force Academy, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a great opportunity. Um, my grades and my activities and my. Uh, I didn't feel like applying to the academy was a realistic possibility. Yeah. Um, and it's a great school and it's a great place for uh, the right folks to, to end up. At, but that just wasn't the right route for me. There are things I wanted uh, a college experience. Um, yeah. Whereas the academy is a very military focused organization, I wanted the traditional college experience. For so sure. ROTC seemed like the right choice for me. Um, and I applied for scholarships with both the army and the air force. And uh Ultimately, it was uh, the Air Force that I was fortunate to get a scholarship yes. for. I remember doing the the fitness test with the Army, and uh, it did not go well. I, I remember there was this <laughs> one event where you have to like sit on your knees and throw a basketball as far as you can. And, wow. and I was like, I don't know yeah. if they do that anymore. I'm sure they have something more advanced at this point. But I was not good at throwing a basketball from my knees sure. when I was yeah. Who applying that's, for that's it. That's interesting. So, yeah. uh, I was fortunate; the Air Force saw fit to bring me on board. And where did you do this ROTC program at? So I went to uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. It's a tech school in uh, just outside Albany, New York. Okay. Um, and I studied electrical engineering at the time. Um, I, I, There's a bunch of things I was interested in growing up and, and solving problems and fixing things and uh, building stuff was something I was always excited about doing. So yeah. uh, engineering seemed like the right choice. Now, I was of the mind that in order to be a pilot, you have to be an aeronautical engineer. That sure. was the best path. And one of the things that I've learned is you can do any major uh, and be a pilot um, and be successful. Now, ROTC tends to give scholarships to folks that are heading towards technical degrees or language degrees or certain other strategic degrees. Uh, But what I found is some of the best pilots out there had nothing to do with an aeronautical engineering uh, or an engineering degree at all. Matter of fact, I had wanted an aeronautical engineering degree, and the Air Force said, "If you'd like to come on board, we'd really like you to get an electrical engineering degree wow, for that... a scholarship." And that's ultimately what chose my major.
0: That's really interesting. In yeah, and that's a good that's a good thing for everybody to know is that you don't have to go get an aeronautics degree. You can you can do because they call pilots. There's two different kind of is it rated and non-rated
1: for officers. That's true. And um, what'll happen is whatever your accession source is, whether it's uh, the Academy, ROTC, or OTS, uh, you'll go in with either a rated allocation, which means that you're being vectored towards either pilot navigator, uh, air battle manager, or a remotely piloted aircraft operator.
0: Okay. And can you tell me how the ROTC, the whole program works? Like we we talk about, I think you're the my third guest that has gone the ROTC route. But I don't know if we've necessarily gone into how that program works and how that transitions you from college to the Air Force.
1: You know, it's a great question. It's it's funny. The job that I was doing before um, recruiting operations was I was actually, I went back to an upstate New York technical school to be an Air Force ROTC detachment commander. Nice. So I was working out a Rochester Institute of Technology for the last three years as their professor of aerospace studies. So oh, that's I love awesome. talking about ROTC. Um, Rotsi is a program that lays over a traditional college degree program. So whether you're going for history, political science, uh, criminal justice, engineering, whatever it is, um, you will add one class per semester that ends up being your Air Force uh, studies and knowledge uh, okay. base. And uh, our small cadres in our colleges are teaching those courses. In addition to that one academic course, uh, you take uh, physical training, usually yeah. two, three, four times a week. Uh, and then there's a course that's also called Leadership Lab. And it's a two-hour class session, but it's, uh, it's planned, executed, and trained by the cadet wing that's there. And whether your cadet wing is uh, 40 folks or whether it's several hundred folks in some yeah. of our big, sco- uh, big colleges, uh, they actually do the training cadets to do the training that prepares cadets to go to field training between the summer of their sophomore and junior year. And uh, whether you're on scholarship or not, you don't have to be on scholarship to do the And that's one of the cool things is you can enter the program to see, hey, do I like this? And if you do like it or love it and your performance is good, you can earn scholarships while you're actually in the program itself. And by the time you transition uh, and go through field training, as you enter your junior and senior years of college, you get more responsibility, more sure. uh, authority, more jobs that you have to do in order to make this ROTC experience work for the rest of the detachment. And then by the time you finish and you graduate with your college degree, you commission as a second lieutenant uh, okay. in, in the Air Force, and you, you get assigned a job somewhere between your junior and your senior year, and then uh, you go off into the big Air Force and you start doing the work, the leadership training that you had prepared for. You start applying it in the, in the real world Air Force. That's
0: really cool that they get to do that because one of the big concerns for people that are going to, to college is after they, they get their degree, like, okay, now I have this degree. I, I put in all this work to get this degree. I may have a bunch of student loans. I've got a lot of pressure to go find a job right away. And this ROTC program is basically like walking you straight into your first job after you graduate. And it happens to be in the world's greatest air power.
1: It is actually a really good value proposition when you look at it, having a known employment opportunity coming out and you can do the math and you can figure out, hey, how much am I earning potential and what are the benefits that I'm getting? And those are nice to have, but really it's over the course of my first assignment, what experiences can I gain? And then what do I want to do with them next? And some people leave the Air Force and they'll join either the reserves or the guard, or they'll go pure civilian. The cool thing is you get this great talent set and experience set that you've earned in that. Air Force time. Yeah, uh, that for you sure. Do, you can use to do just about anything.
0: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: I couldn't
0: agree more. That, that is awesome. So you graduate from ROTC and you enter the pilot training program, I'm, I'm guessing. How How is that
1: whole program for you? So, it's interesting. Uh, You know, I did a little bit of time as a casual lieutenant. I was working out of um, McConnell Air Force Base in Kansas, um, working with a refueling squadron, and it was actually really kind of cool to learn that business for about nine months before I got sent out to Vance Air Force Base, which is in Enid, Oklahoma. Okay, And uh, they've been running uh, pilot training there for a long, long time. Uh, And pilot training was intimidating for me because I knew that it's one of those programs where you have to be fairly successful and you have to learn a lot of stuff pretty quickly. Sure. And the weird thing is initially I thought it was like an individual effort, kind of like college was for me. Yeah. And really it ends up being a team effort. And if you're going to succeed, the best way to get through pilot training is to really work with a group of people that are in your class, figure out who's good at what, divide up the tasks and responsibility, and you teach each other in addition to the instruction that you're receiving. Pilot training in short, you're going to go through a series of phases. There's an academic phase, and then there's a basic phase where you're operating right now in the T-6 aircraft. I did it so long ago. It was back in a T-37, where you learn basic airmanship, the the principles of operating an aircraft, emergency procedures, instrument flying, and then formation flying. And then in most cases, pilot training has a track select where you'll uh, go on to either fly uh, large aircraft, heavy aircraft, cargo transport, or uh, transition to fighter bomber. Aviation, And then there's top off training along each one of those paths. But the whole thing is competitive and you're getting scored and evaluated yeah. every day. And I'll be honest, through all my high school, all my college, I didn't learn how to really study, like really study until I got to pilot training. Yeah. And I had to adapt. For sure.
0: It's, it's funny you mentioned kind of creating this, this team environment where you're, you're teaching each other things that maybe you're good at. Same thing happened in basic training. You know, we had the guys who roll, who knew how to roll socks and the guys who knew how to roll t-shirts and, and we all came together as a team. And I don't know if that was the, the goal for base training, but I I have a feeling it probably had something to do with it, but we get together as a team at the end of the day and and everybody's okay. You got the socks, you've got the shirts. So it's really cool that that kind of adapts and, and, and flows throughout the entire, the air force. And that's what it's all about. It's all about teamwork and wingmen. So I have to ask you, the first time you ever flew an aircraft, can you tell me what that felt like?
1: So it, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I had the the very good fortune of flying like one general aviation uh, ride in a Cessna with a friend when I was about 15 years old. He, nice. he had won it in like a uh, raffle or something like that. And he, he knew I wanted to do this, so he brought me along. And I, I think that anybody who's thinking like, hey, this might be something that you're interested in. That that first introductory flight, usually you can get the first hour at, at a discount. And it's it's not inexpensive. Yeah. But the experience is really cool to be able to take off and you see that the the, the two dimensional world that you're used to kind of living on. And then you see that third dimension. Um, if you haven't seen the world from the air, it gives you a very different perspective. Oh yeah. And then once you've been up there, you're like, Yeah, I want to try and find a way to get back here. And then the sensations of flying in an aircraft are just Amazing, And as you get to higher and higher performance aircraft, that adrenaline rush that comes with doing that and having to think ahead because we're moving faster, it just gets bigger and bigger uh, as you continue to move along in your training and as you get those different experiences. Yeah. I mean, that's
0: going up to those high performance aircraft. It's got to be like, wow, I've got such an amazing piece of power that I'm sitting in that I can do unbelievable things. Do you have any, let me ask you this. What's the best
1: story about flying in the F-15 that you have that you can tell our listeners? There's a lot of great experiences. Yeah. Um, the one that... the one There's a couple that... I'll tell you two. Okay, Two that perfect. stick out um, really most in my mind. One of the cool things that we were doing when we were flying out of Japan was uh, working with partner nations. And we'd go and either they'd come to us or we'd go out and fly with them. And we had a great opportunity um, to go fly with the Malaysian Air Force. Nice. And I remember this one mission where we took off and I was flying with two Malaysian MiG-29s and cool. it's, a, it's a Russian built aircraft yeah. um, that Malaysia uh, has brought on board and we'd studied the aircraft and we thought we knew a lot about it and what you study in the book versus what, when you actually go and see it and then you're actually flying on its wing. Uh, it was really kind of cool. That is awesome. So Malaysian flight lead took us out and it was two Malaysian MiG-29s flying against me and I was flying in the offensive role behind them, and the two of them were flying defensive roles out in front of me, and we can all see each other. And you kind of get set up um, almost like uh, like how two wrestlers get set up right, sure. right before a match, like you get in a position and you say, ready, go, and then yeah. you fight. Uh, and then we did a series of those engagements, and it was just the most absolute fun. I bet. Working with these guys, and they're great guys, they're great pilots, they're amazing yeah. aircraft. But when you finally see, hey, this is what my plane can do Based off of what we train against. Yeah. And it's all training. Everything is simulated. There's no actual missiles. There's no real danger associated with the actual uh, maneuvers themselves. But we maneuver into positions where we say, hey, based off of where I was at, the, the weapon systems that I have on board would have been able to take yeah. you out. And it's always fun to go back in the debrief when you tally up your scores. <laughs> and it, there is a score. At yeah, the end of the for day. sure. That one turned out all right. That's awesome. And the other story, you said you had two. The other one um, was one sortie where we were doing a uh, orientation ride. Um, it was my squadron commander and I were taking a two ship of F-15s, and in his back seat, he had a, a distinguished visitor, and I don't remember where the <laughs> person was from. But one of the things that he wanted to do was go as fast and as high as he as he could. And we had this airspace uh, outside of uh, off of the mainland, out over water, where you sure. could go pretty much as high as. The planes and the rules let you go. Wow. And uh, one of the things we did is we got right up to just about 50,000 feet.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And you put five stages of afterburner and really you don't feel the acceleration and the speed because you're so high up. You lose that sensation of speed. But at 50,000 feet, there's some cool things that start to happen, like yeah. the blue sky that you're used to seeing starts to change color, and it starts to get a little bit darker. And it's wow. not like dark like space, but you can tell that the, the colors change. And you look out, and you can actually start to see a little bit of curvature of the earth. Oh, man. Um, and you look at the speed gauge, and it's uh, it's well over uh, Mach 1, which is the speed of sound. You, we start to F- measure in how many times of the speed of sound are sure. you going at those altitudes and speeds. You see Mach 1, Mach 1. 1.5, Mach more than that. And um burning oh, wow. gas yeah, and it was just one of those things like there's i felt like hey there's very few people who get to experience this i mean yeah there's other aviators there's astronauts who get to see this uh, and, and far more but i felt very special to have gotten the opportunity to see something that i felt just not many people get an opportunity and that, those are just aerial experiences there's so, so many cool. military experiences that i think probably trump that in terms of satisfaction in terms of working with people and things sure. that we've accomplished those are just cool aviation oh things. heck yeah. But in the grand scheme of a 23-year career, that's probably not what I most treasure about oh, my Air Force journey, yeah, you know? Yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, my, my cheeks hurt because I'm smiling so hard because <laughs> those stories are so cool. So thank you for sharing those. And we're going to get into more of the bigger picture things mm-hmm. and what you're, you know, Thankful for 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 your time in the service. So, but those stories are just awesome, and I know our listeners will love that. No, because- that's great.
1: And I love talking about flying. Yeah. There's one of the things that there's a common joke that says, "How do you know you have a fighter pilot at your dinner party?" And it's. He will tell all of your guests that you have a fighter pilot your <laughs> <laughs> and then start telling you stories using words and phrases that make no sense to anyone. So it's like a
0: CrossFitter, <laughs> you know, the first rule of CrossFit is tell everybody <laughs> you do CrossFit, something like yeah. that. <laughs> we try and break those stereotypes, but it sometimes happens. So I'm, I'm looking at your flight suit, sir, and you've got your first name and your last name, but in in the middle of that, there's a, there's a name in, in quotations and it's Maestro. What is that?
1: So... Every fighter aviator gets a call sign, and the, the most easy translation that folks see is like in the movie Top Gun. I mean, the latest yes. one's called Maverick, and it's, yeah. it's his call sign. And your call sign is something that you don't get to choose yourself. It's chosen by your squadron. Nice. Um, and usually it happens after you've been in the squadron for a, a period of time, usually like less than a year. Uh, and they have a naming ceremony where there's oh, some very pomp cool. and circumstance that goes into it. But at the end of the day, uh, you end up with your call sign and mine happened to be Maestro. And it's Maestro. just, it's something that I don't know if it was chosen based off of my personality or if my personality is molded to to meet it, but it, it's something that's carried with me. And a lot more people in the Air Force know me as Maestro than as Jason. Yes.
0: Yeah, I was I was deployed to Afghanistan and... I was part of the 9th ADIF, which is the 9th Air Expeditionary Task Force in Afghanistan. And we were stationed uh, in the capital. And I was with a lot of fighter pilots. A lot of my leadership was fighter pilots. And they all had call signs. They all went by call signs. And this was kind of the first time that I'd ever worked directly with fighter pilots. And it was so cool. I mean, they, they would walk around and and one was ship. And the funny thing is we had one, his name was Maestro. Uh, his call sign was Maestro. And he was actually the, the installation commander at a base in Afghanistan that we worked with. And uh, he was awesome. So I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, I, I knew a Maestro. That's great. But that's a really cool kind of like a fraternity almost of like a, or like a, I don't know. I, I think that that's really cool that you guys all get call signs and that's what you go by.
1: It's, it does definitely become part of your identity. And a matter of fact, it's so much so that in a squadron, we'll have what's called first name Fridays, where you're not able to call p- people by your call sign, which is what you've become so accustomed to. And you have yeah. to say, hey, Mike, how's it going, Jim? It's good to see you. And then I- invariably, you run across a person that you interact with a hundred times in a week, and you're like, I, I just don't remember what yeah. your first name is. It's, you lose track of it. It's just part of the culture. It's, uh, it's one of the things that is part of the history of what we've been doing. And it's, uh, I don't know. It's something that I think I enjoy. Yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so we got to talk about why you joined. We talked a little bit about, um, your career in, in the fighter, you know, the fighter world, the fighter, fighter realm. But what I want to do now is I want to talk about what you're doing currently, uh, as the chief of operations for air force recruiting service. So can you tell me a little bit about that job and then what kind of like a, a, a day in the life of um, or for you is like?
1: Yeah. I, I One of the things that when I found out that I was coming to recruiting, I was really excited about it. Yeah. Um, it we talked a little bit about flying and I found out that I, I, I love teaching and I love working with people and I love helping people achieve their potential as much as flying airplanes. Absolutely. And I, I really see recruiting as one of those places where we help people achieve what their potential is so i was really excited to be a part of it but in operations what we're doing at the headquarters level is trying to provide uh the policy the strategy the guidance uh for how our uh how our recruiters out in the field will end up operating so that manages everything from our our operations guidance our documentation that governs it and the policies that we use to bring people on board Trying to manage those in a way that meets the needs of a very diverse recruiting force. I mean, you look at what the needs are here in Wisconsin versus what they might be out in Texas, and it's it's a different challenge for each one of those recruiters, working in a different environment with different people, um, and trying to build policy that matches the spread of the nation, and even looking at our overseas recruiting operations as well, where we have bases out in Europe and the Pacific, trying to match policy, goaling. And uh, really it's when you boil it down, the mission is every year the Air Force needs somewhere between 27 and about 33,000 people in the regular Air Force alone. Wow. And we're also recruiting for the reserves and the guard. Yeah. It's how do you get the team, the tools that they need to go out and find those about 30,000 young Americans who are going to become part of our team every year. And that's the challenge that we're really trying to get after.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm really, obviously I'm, I'm privy to operations because I'm an operations NCO here at the squadron level. So I definitely understand where you're coming from and, and how important of a role that plays in the recruiting process, because it's not just people coming in and saying, I want to join the Air Force. And then we just put a, you know, a, a uniform on them and, and send them off to basic training. I always try to explain operations to our new recruiters that are coming in is we're we're here to bring you to the finish line. We're here to you did all the work. you did the the tough work of finding the the applicants and 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 getting them you know to uh, wanting to join the Air Force. And now operations is here to support you in getting that individual down to basic training, whether that be waivers or you know a credit check or or booking or reserving a job, um, dealing with the goaling aspect. So it does play a major role in recruiting, and uh, it's good to have a, a solid leader in that position uh, so we have good guidance on how to, to best prepare our operations at a squadron level and then pushing that out to the recruiters. So we appreciate what you do, sir.
1: Uh, it's, it's all about taking care of people and giving them yep. the tools that they need to do their job and then eliminating barriers that are hindering them in, yeah. in doing their job. And, and we're seeing that there's a lot of challenges, ton of challenges in the last fiscal year in 2022, getting to our goal. And the, uh, the active duty uh, enlisted force, we we got what we needed, but just barely. Yeah. And it was through the hard work of our recruiters out in the field, um, just a really Herculean lift mm-hmm. um, to go out and find the talent in, in young America and, and go through those processes to bring them on board. 2023 is looking to be at least as challenging, if not more so. Um, so breaking down barriers so that our recruiters can go out and do their job effectively. Yeah. Uh, if I can help do that. I'm all in. For sure. Yeah, I can speak
0: from our our squadron standpoint, seeing the recruiters and the flight chiefs come together towards the end of the fiscal year. That was awesome. I mean, they were working so hard. Uh, the grit that they had to to get the job done. Uh, seeing that from an operation standpoint was awesome. I mean, just knowing how hard they're working, it made me want to work hard for them. I know 2023 is going to be difficult, but I, I feel like here in the 347th, we have the team to do it. So I'm excited uh, and
1: ready to to rock and roll. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The 347th has an amazing team, great leadership, yes, and, uh, and really working in a in an area that I think is untapped in, in yeah. a lot of ways, and that uh, there's a lot of great young folks that by doing the outreach that y'all are doing, uh, you're finding folks that maybe didn't think. Of an Air Force career because maybe they don't have those planes flying overhead as often as you and I maybe saw. And the 347th is one of many. And when you look at that problem and you multiply it across all of America, I totally think we can get after it with with the intelligence, talent, uh, motivation, drive, and uh, our recruiters out in the field that are building trust in our communities and really kind of showing, hey, this is a great opportunity. And it's not all about the money and the benefits. Those are there. Yeah. But this is an experience that is going to be part of how you define who you are. Yeah. Absolutely. Just linking people with that opportunity, I think is really a special job.
0: Yeah, we were talking about that before we we got on the podcast here. We were just just talking about how the the idea of the Air Force may not be the reality to the general population and the opportunities that are provided through the Air Force. I mean, not only do we have almost 200 jobs that you can choose from in the Air Force, but you're not stuck in that job forever. I didn't join as a recruiter. Uh, I started out in air transportation. I moved to recruiting. There's so many different opportunities for you to move, you know, laterally in, within the Air Force, and, and you've held so many different positions, and every person I've had on this podcast so far has held multiple different positions. So just being able to showcase that on this show and, and show people that movies depict the military a certain way, but, but it's so much more. There's, there's so many levels to the Air Force and so many opportunities that uh, the Air and Space Force can provide you. Uh, you just have to go out and you know talk with that recruiter.
1: And I think a lot of it is people don't know how the story's going to play out. Yeah. You know, when I entered, like we talked about, I really wanted to fly airplanes, but I learned very quickly that I love teaching at least as much as I love flying. And my first job after pilot training was coming back to be an instructor in basic pilot training. And that led to a series of jobs that put me in a teaching role. Mm -hmm. And then those teaching roles put me in positions where I was working with international partners. And then those jobs working with international partners gave me an opportunity to uh, d- do a little bit of political military strategy and then work for a year in United Arab Emirates, working with a partner nation yeah. in terms of uh, expanding their capacity, working with their teams, training mission commanders. That led to an opportunity to go teach at EuroNATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, where I'm working with uh, Germans and Italians and uh, uh, Dutch partners in terms of building their fighter aviation. And then an opportunity command comes out of that and then yeah. a little bit of leadership responsibility and then that all wraps back around to be a uh, a college professor yeah. in essence back doing uh a razi program similar to what i started with and it's this weird circle of how one experience leads to another and it's not always something that's planned yeah. and sometimes it's not always something that you even choose or is your first choice but one thing that uh someone told to me early on is every assignment that you get there's going to be one, one, at least one of these elements, either the location you're going to love, and it's going to be maybe someplace close to family, or it's yeah. someplace warm, like a vacation location that you really wanted to be, or it's going to be the people that you work with, the team that you're yep. surrounded by and the, and the talents that they bring, or the mission that you do, um, the job that you get done. You're going to love at least one of those three things, either the location, the people or the mission. And I can't tell you how many times I got a new assignment and I didn't know much about any of those three things. But then when I got there, it was such a fulfilling experience. And really this job doing recruiting operations is one of those where the location's cool. Cause I love San Antonio. Yeah. But I also love getting out on the road and being in places like Wisconsin that absolutely. I really haven't gotten a chance to go to before. Uh, the people are absolutely remarkable and the talent and the endeavor and our recruiters is something that's always inspiring. Yeah. And the team that supports them, I, I think we've got a great team that's, Really trying to get after the problem set that we're dealing with today, and then the mission is such a fulfilling job to bring people onto our team. Absolutely, yeah, I
0: couldn't agree more. Uh, I've always said it that doing what we do as recruiters and having the opportunity to change people's lives is something that is so unbelievably fulfilling that you know you can lay down every single night when you go to bed and go, "Wow, I I, I may not be deployed or 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 you know." You know, on the front line, seeing the impact, but, but we are because when we get those text messages or those pictures from parents of their kids graduating basic training, the people that we put
1: in, it's a phenomenal feeling for sure. And it's remarkable when you go out into the communities and maybe it's just, um, you're wearing a uniform and you're, you're going to grab a, a gallon of milk at the, the grocery store and someone walks up to you and they they, they look you in the eyes and they say, thank you for your service. And you can tell it's a really heartfelt, yes. um, And our communities, uh, the vast majority of them are so supportive and so appreciative. And it's one of those things, like, I'm not really sure how to answer when someone says, thank you for your service, you know, because I really felt like I was doing exactly what I wanted to do, even, exactly. even during the hard yeah. times. So it's a, a lot of times I'll answer, thank you. I'm honored to serve you, you know, yeah, um, cause it's really been a great experience to be able to do those things. And the fact that our, our communities respect us for it is just one of the added benefits of being part of this team. Yeah, it's amazing.
0: So I've got a couple more questions for you, sir, before we wrap this thing up. Uh, the first question I ask every single guest this uh, I ask every single guest these last two questions because I think they're really important to get a perspective from each, from each guest. Over your long tenured career, what would you say was the best advice or thing that you learned? throughout your journey that you've taken
1: with you? That's a really good question. And there's so many lessons learned and so many mentors that I've tried to take a little bit of what made them a great leader and how they influenced my life. And I try and carry that on with other people. Um, So I'll try and sum those up in kind of one concept that's kind of a, a combination of all of those. One mentor that meant a lot to me said, before you complain about a problem, at least have thought about how you'd go about solving it yeah and what are the tools that uh, you could have and i think that's true from our most senior leaders to our most uh our newest team members is when you look at a problem that's in front of you and that could be a big strategic problem or that can be a simple procedural problem if you're frustrated with something well how can we fix it yeah what would we need to get this done and The next thing is if you're looking at a problem and you don't have an answer, who do I know who could help? Yes. And don't be afraid to ask the right people for help. And sometimes early in your career, that's bringing problems up the chain of command. And it may be you're the first person to see a problem. And uh, by alerting the folks that can do something about it, they're going to put resources to make it right. Yeah. Or they can at least explain why things are the way they are. And until you get that, Here's why things are the way they are. It, you keep asking yourself those questions and you keep asking the right people for help. For sure. I think that's one of kind of the, the the biggest mindsets that if you go into the military expecting people to solve problems for you, that's not what we brought you on board for. We we need smart people to Absolutely. have learn how to solve problems uh, within their span of control. And the cool thing is in the military, you as you continue to advance, you find that your span of control to solve problems for yourself and for other people continues to grow as your responsibility and your authority grow. But what's true is even at the very beginning of that journey, our our youngest airmen, our newest set's eyes are often the ones that'll see problems with a different light, a different perspective, and be the ones who can maybe bring solutions to these problems. Yeah. Yeah. Right
0: on. That's, you are uh, spot on with that. That's, couldn't have said it better myself, sir. The last question we have, and I, I, I love that you talked about the new airmen We're gonna do a little role playing. We're sitting in this office here in this studio and I am a brand new airman, right? I just walked through the gateway to the Air Force at Lackland Air Force Base. And I'm sitting down with the Chief of Operations for Air Force Recruiting Service, Lieutenant Colonel Turner. What advice would you have for
1: me as a brand new airman? First off, I'm gonna say, hey, I'm proud of you, that you've made the commitment to get here. Um, cause it's not easy and not everybody is willing to do what you've done to get to this point. So I'm really proud to have you on our team. Yeah. And I, I can't wait to work with you because yeah. I know you're going to have, you're going to make a difference. What, whatever job you're doing, whatever role you're doing and wherever you're doing it, if you do it well and you b- become an active part of your team, you're going to have a huge impact. And I'm, I'm thrilled for that. One of the things that I, talked a lot with my ROTC cadets about, and I'd tell a young airman going into basic training is what you're about to do is special. And the group of people that you're going to do it with is special. And one of the things I did with my cadets is I say, Hey, take out your key ring. They're like, what? You have your keys on you? They're like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they pull out their keys and they look at it. And, um, I say, well, what's on there? They're like, well, it's my car key. I'm like, what kind of car are you driving? It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. But most people are like, hey, this is the way I get around. And some people are really proud of their vehicles. What else you got on your keychain? Well, it's my house key or my apartment key. And I said, well, why is that important? Well, it's where most of the stuff that I've owned and acquired, and it's probably where my family lives. And it's for everybody who's special to me. A lot of people often live behind the key that this door unlocks. I say, well, what else is there? Well, maybe the key to my office or my workplace all the things that are special and the the, the missions that need yep. to get done and all the materials that we use to get the job done they all sit on that keychain and i would tell that young airman across from me as i hold my keys in my hand is one of the cool things about being a part of this team is i know that if i get called away on a mission and i i know i can't take care of the things on the key ring i can trust you to take care of them for me because yeah. that's what being part of this team is about and that's what having a mindset around integrity and service and excellence means that I know that just because you're wearing the same uniform that I am, there's an amount of trust that I could take everything that's important to my world that exists on this keychain, access to everything that I own, and many con- times the people that I hold dear, and if I need to, I can trust you with them, and you could do the same for me. And I said, that's the power of being on this team, and I think that's something special. Wow, yeah, that is
0: very, very well put. I mean, that is, that is a great analogy and oh man, I'll remember that one. That one was good. I appreciate that. And Colonel Turner, I appreciate you coming on. I really do. This has been awesome.
1: Sergeant Jack, this has been a great experience for me. You're amazing at what you do uh, and continue to get the message out there because the more people who are listening to you and are hearing about what what the Air Force is and what it can be um, for our recruiters in the field that listen to this and they use it as a, a call to action. And as a motivator, I think it's great. And for those folks who might be interested in joining our team, I think they, they gain a lot by having you doing this podcast. So it's been a pleasure being a part of this. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the Chief of Operations for Air Force Recruiting Service, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Turner. Thank you for listening to the Air Power Hour. Take care, friends.